Hi, your pal. Hi, mate. How's it going? Yeah, I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm, I'm somewhat dreadful. I've got some sort of horrible cold that I'm trying not to think too much about. That involves like sweating, but at the same time shivers. Oh. Um, yeah, which, uh, yeah, but I'm getting through it, and I'm smashing out a, a booklet on 17th century society for work. Okay. It's bad. Well, yeah, yeah. I um, I've got some. Good news and some bad news. Go on. Which um, which way round do you want them? I could do um, the, maybe the bad first and then. Yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. Vegetables and then tree. Um. Everything that we've recorded about four episodes worth, I've discovered mm-hmm. today on on Sunday. Yes. Um, that that it's all sort of corrupted, or if not corrupted, filled with um. Mm-hmm. Errors what? and artifacts. What? Um, so what, so it's just hmm? gone. So it's just well, it's, here. <laughs> it's worse than gone. It's here but bad. It's it exists but is rotten. Oh, so you can see the thing we made, but you're not. It's unusable. Yeah, it sounds like this. Although the stocks may <laughs> call me crazy, maybe the stocks is better than prison because stocks. Yeah, that's that is worse. Mm. So what the fuck we're gonna do? It's the we we gotta upload it tonight. Yes. We've got nothing. Mm. Um, I have a, a, a tentative what idea. What's the good news? What's the good news in this arrangement? This is all bad. Oh, um, the good news is that I'm still your friend and I still am enthusiastic about doing the podcast generally. I mean, that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> this is good information, but that's not news. It's not new information. It's not, you were already my friend. If you okay. were my enemy and became my friend. So that's what you've just given me is some bad information. Some information that I already knew. Well, I gave you some bad news and a happy reminder. But yeah, um, I have. I have. Right, so what? I also have possibly an idea of what we should do. Okay. We could always release the Waterworld tapes. We're never releasing them. No, oh. they're not coming along. Okay. I've already made the graphic for. Waterworld. You know, the back, the the the, the blowback. Can't risk it. Mm, okay. Um, I guess we just pull some bits and pieces together and... I've got no bits. I've got no pieces. Um, with the, with the, with the, that content was the content. Just little bits. Just little bits and... What bit, what bit have you got? A bit about an orb. I could talk about an orb. An orb? That will make sense in context. I'm just... We could just thread together some bits and... Have you seen Zap? Did you, did you see Zap growing up? The CITV Zap with multiple Zs. With the big comic mm, and the hands, and it zooms in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of slapstick. What's that got to do with anything? 
Well, I think you it know seems that should be the premise of our only audio podcast—a <laughs> a visual slapstick. No, Zap is the solution to the problem we find ourselves in. It's that Zap actually, I don't think, was a good show, but something about the fact that it kept changing the focus uh, right. kept me hooked. And so I think if we just pull anything we have together and just oh, uh, yeah, thread yeah. them together, then um, it will give it. What it lacks in coherence, it will make up in the dynamism of, of changing all the time. Quilt, like a quilt. You could have said a quilt. I don't have the same fond memories of a quilt that I do of Zap. Who's not like quilts? What's the difference between a quilt and like a duvet? What's a quilt? Uh, oh, do you know what? I don't know. Okay. Uh, synonyms? Uh, uh, please, please email us if you know the difference. Yeah, DM below. Tweet us Mando Party. Uh, what's the difference between a quilt? I don't know, but what was the other one? A duvet. Duvet. Maybe it's like a couch sofa thing. I think there is a difference between a couch and a sofa. What? what, what? No, irrelevant. Okay. So what? So you're saying we need to make an episode in like six or seven hours? If that's okay, yeah. If that's all right. I know you're a bit shivering. So what, am I, what am I doing? You're talking about these bits. You're mm. talking about an orb. I got nothing. I got no orb. I got nothing. Well, you could talk so about history or something from your life. Right. Something, um, just a sort of a autobiographical piece. Um, could talk about an egg. Yeah. You could talk. I've, that's a kind of an orb. You could talk about an egg. Egg. You could talk the about only egg thing. I've got is like um, John Prescott getting egged in real. That's that's. There we go. That's direct action. See what I mean? You can fudge okay, it. Okay. You can fudge it. Uh, okay. Now I'll cook him a gas. Um, uh, John Castro's cow. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah. Castro's cow. Right. So, write that stuff, research it, record it. Yeah, but you could do music. it badly. <laughs> you could do it. I think you've got license to do it badly. I don't know if I'm do happy. Okay. I don't know if I'm happy with this, but okay. Okay. Well, the news is bad, this, but I don't forget about no, the happy no reminder. Well, there was. Me no good news. <laughs> well, okay. Well, the happy reminder should have helped, but. I feel like it somehow made it you feel help. worse. We're still friends. We're still friends. It's okay. All right, jobs are good and bish bash bosh. Um, but what about the next few weeks of episodes? When the fuck are we going to record that? Think about it later. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. See, see ya. Um, good night. Huh? Good night. What? What? Sorry. Uh, I'm turning off the phone. Okay. And then I'm going okay. to bed. Good night. What? Sunny real, sunny real, sunny real. If you start chanting this in real Weatherspoons, everyone will join in. Real was a massive part of my youth. Getting attacked by a man in a plaster cast that attacks your rank at 3am. Dislodging the cold corpse of a seagull from inside a sun centre slide with my near naked body. Almost treading in human poo on the beach during my first date. By measures of income, health, education, access to green space and more, Real's got some of the most deprived communities in Wales. Once upon a time, Rill was a thriving seaside resort, the location of the world's first passenger hovercraft, the front lined with magnificent Victorian B&Bs. There's even an underground system of canals called Little Venice that let rich people move around beneath the town on gondolas through subterranean canals, avoiding poor people. Rill's glory days are long gone. The entrances to Little Venice are locked off. Even the most ambitious exploration YouTubers haven't managed to crack them open. The B&Bs have been split into tiny flats by predatory landlords. You know, just landlords 
Every other shop on the high street seems to be closed or even boarded up. Trees are locked in eight-foot metal cylinders to keep the riffraff from touching them. As if the trees are bad and imprisoned on real high street as punishment. Marks and Spencer's moved down the road to Prestine. My mum and everyone else's mum I know from around there loves the cafe. They do scones! Real was really important in informing my politics. A lot of the social issues that face the people of Real in 2020, high unemployment, poor literacy rates, addiction, low life expectancy, didn't emerge in 2010 when the Tories slimed their way into power with their Lib Dem enablers. Yeah, those guys did not help. But even in the supposed boom times, Real was one of those left behind towns, 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 that new Labour abandoned. Having mates who got in trouble because they couldn't afford school shoes, while the government had plenty of money to spend dropping bombs on Iraqis, sort of clarified some stuff. But I don't just remember the social and economic discontent. I remember politics feeling far away. Some other thing that just didn't involve me, and especially people worse off than me. Politics happened in London, and it was very serious. The first time I remember politics, capital P, the type of politics the BBC says is politics, happening in real was in the 2001 election when Deputy Prime Minister John Two Jags Prescott got egged by a man with a Pat Sharp mullet. Prescott is himself from Pristine, down the road where the M&S would one day move. The egg thrower was Craig Evans, no relation to me, although I wish. A farm worker pissed off at the government's mishandling of the foot and mouth crisis. Evans smashed the egg into Prescott's head, its gooey innards draining down his neck like sci-fi blood. Prescott's reflexes kicked in. He retaliated, launching a punch straight at Evans' mulleted head. Surely this is going to be bad for Prescott, right? Well, Lord Faulkner, Tony Blair's barrister flatmate from his youth, watched the footage of Prescott walloping a member of the public and advised at the time, I think we could make a case for self-defence. Neither of them were charged by the police. We talk now as if politics has radically changed. The era of gaffes is over. We can't do satire anymore. Trump and Johnson can do whatever they want. Racism, forbidden blood rituals, with seemingly no consequences. What I remember about the Prescott punches, everyone saying he was a legend? Go on, John, lad, knock him out. Someone had me, I'd bang him out. One bomb. The day after the egg punch in a strategy meeting, Alistair Campbell said, it will probably go down well with the D slash E's. Aye, working class voters if you're a hack sociologist or policy wonk. Blair said, I can't talk about it without finding it funny. Prescott himself joked with Blair that he'd only been connecting with the electorate. Because I was, and am, an absolute nerd, I did my work experience in year 10 with the Vale of Cluid MP Chris Rowan. In his office, nailed to a wall, were a pair of boxing gloves signed by John Prescott a symbolic artefact of the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, flanked by cops, smacking a farm worker in the face. Legend. Icon. Politics had come to Rill. A time when the newspapers and media briefly cared about Rill. Not anyone in its social problems, just a powerful person punching someone who's not very powerful. Lobbing an egg in protest isn't new. People used to chuck him at prisoners in the stocks in Middle Ages or chuck him at bad actors at the Globe. Egging a politician is a form of direct action, but that doesn't mean it's political violence. It's just inconvenience in you. It's in the same realm as, I don't know, chucking a milkshake at someone? The same journalist class that lionised what Prescott did or saw it as a bit of banter. By the way, punching someone in the head is violence. Absolutely lost their shit at the idea of a drop of milkshake, getting on reactionary fash like Tommy Robinson. The same people who bang the drums of war, support actually dropping bombs on people that kill them are supposedly such pacifists that even passing contact with dairy or egg is a step too far. Egging happens all the time, it's been kind of normalised. Ed Miliband, George Galloway, Nick Griffin, all victims of the egg. 
It's such an accepted thing to happen to politicians that in 2019, when a man basically punched Corbyn in the head at Finsbury Park Mosque, he knew that if he had an egg in his hand when he smacked him, it'd be labelled as okay, just fine, just an egging. Corbyn, unsurprisingly, did not punch the person who did it. Not that he ever would. And if he did, for some reason, it would have been one more lump of coal for the propaganda furnace. So my basic thought is this. It's not that gaffes are meaningless now. Politicians being embarrassed or doing weird stuff, it doesn't end their career anymore. It's not that the old politics of respectability are just gone. It's just that anyone left of the warmongering welfare thatcherism of Prescott and Blair is held to radically different standards by the liberal media class. When Trump says, I could shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, he might be right. Depends who he shoots, I guess. Might even gain voters. But if Bernie Sanders threw one egg at the reanimated corpse of Benito Mussolini, different story. If someone asks me how much a duck weighs, I can go down to the park with a set of scales and carry out an impromptu investigation. If someone asks me a tougher question, like, if there are too many ducks, I can have a good think about my relationship with the ducks, how their moist down feels against my arms as I cuddle their 1.05 kilogram bodies, and then I can respond, more ducks please, if I'm kind, or call, 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 in a low, never-ending chant if I've become evil. However, there are some questions that you could ping at me that would send my head west in a matter of seconds. Is there too much CO2 in the atmosphere? What's behind the crisis in the NHS? How does immigration impact upon the economic prosperity of the United Kingdom? What? I don't, I don't know. How do you expect me to find that out? A set of scales and a day rider just isn't going to cut it here. Which is a shame, because actually that's the extent of my investigative toolkit. Somewhere along the line I've become reliant on someone else to dole out some hot facts into my vacant skull. The fact that we're required to be laden with knowledge and opinions to participate in quote-unquote society places us at the mercy of info barons, anyone who can aggregate and shoot out data through a fact sluice, be it a multinational media conglomerate or a confident wobbler propping up the wet bit of a Weatherspoon's bar grasping crinkled printouts of chemtrail patterns. The difficulty with being beholden to external sources for your news is that they could slip you a few fibs. The only response to this that has gained any traction recently has been this kind of truth pessimist approach that accepts from the off that newspapers, advertisers and politicians, they're just going to lie. So we need to teach the entire population sceptical, critical thinking skills in order to respond to this. To help people analyse that their favourite paper is beholden to the billionaire class or has been drawn into a symbiotic relationship with power or that our informant has just had five pints of Abba Ale and is in no position to have peer-reviewed their research. But if personal responsibility lies with the informed and not the informant, then we're creating this world in which everyone is just surrounded by lies and is duty-bound to either disbelieve everything or carry out these mini-sleuth investigations regarding all incoming information. Mm, there's just not a feasible way to live. And that's because even if you don't consume this information directly, the fact that some news creators are so huge that it directly influences culture, then just by living within that culture, it will seep into you through the values and assumptions you're forced to conform to in order to operate smoothly within that society. You don't need to directly watch the news to be affected by the choices of news coverage. But if we're the serfs to these data barons, the concern is not that we are misinformed, it is that we are manipulated. I don't have to lie to a baby to manipulate it, I can just decide what it has access to in the first place. 
we are all the adult children from Yorgos Lanthimos's dog tooth. Or to quote Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, the US media do not function in the manner of a propaganda system of a totalitarian state. Rather, they permit, encourage spirited debate, criticism and dissent, as long as these remain faithfully within the system of presuppositions and principles that constitute an elite consensus, a system so powerful as to be internalized largely without awareness. And I personally believe that people are far more susceptible to this than is commonly believed. There are so many of these Oh, adverts don't affect me. Self-deceivers. Adverts affect you because you haven't even heard of the things that aren't in an advert. Think of a drink you can buy from a supermarket. Did you think of peanut juice? No. But you can. You can buy peanut juice. It's interesting. I like it. I genuinely believe that if every TV show contained a scene in which one of the principal characters thrust their hand directly into an open flame, stared directly down the lens, and said in a calm, measured tone, it doesn't hurt. Actually, it feels rather good. You would not get to the end of Tuesday without seeing people with burnt hands who get awfully cagey about what happened. Imagine this went on for weeks. There'd come a point where, even if you don't watch TV yourself, you'd just burn your own hand for an easy life. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to fit in. This means that news can shape behavioural norms. I could have written stuff that we do, but I didn't. I wrote behavioural norms, because I think that writing like that will make you respect what I've written. And I bet it does as well. How does that feel, eh? How does it feel? Me playing you like a puppet's flute. So where does the responsibility lie for this? My favourite real-world example comes from an unlikely source, Paul McCartney. In 1967, Paul McCartney admitted to taking LSD in an interview with Time magazine. Shortly after, he had this conversation on television with an interviewer from ITN who accused him of glamorising drugs. Have you taken LSD? About four times. Where did you get it from? Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything, it's silly to say that. Don't you believe that this was a, a matter which you should have kept private? Mm, but the thing is, you know, that I was asked a question by a newspaper. And the decision was whether to tell a lie or to uh, tell him the truth, you know. I decided to tell him the truth. But I, I really didn't want to say anything, you know, because if I had my decision... Uh, you know, if I had it my way, I wouldn't have told anyone, you know, because I'm not trying to spread the word about this. But the man from the newspaper is the man from the mass medium, you know. I'll keep it a personal thing. If he does too, you know, if he keeps it quiet. But he wanted to spread it, so it's his responsibility, you know, for spreading it, not mine. But you're a public figure and you said it in the first place and you must have known that it would, make, would have made the newspapers. Yes, but to say it, you know, is only to tell the truth. I, I'm telling the truth, you know. I don't know what everyone's so angry about. Well, do you think you have now encouraged your fans to take drugs? I don't think it'll make any difference, you know. I don't think my fans are going to take drugs just because I did, you know. But the thing is, that's not the point anyway. You know, I was asked whether I had or not. And then from then on, the whole bit about how far it's going to go and how many people it's going to encourage is up to the newspapers and up to you, you know, on television. I mean, you're spreading this now at this moment. This is going into all the homes, you know, in Britain. And I'd rather it didn't, you know. But you're asking me the question. You want me to be honest. I'll be honest, you know. But as a public figure, surely you've got a responsibility 
to lots and no, lots of No, it's you've teenagers. got the responsibility. You've got the responsibility not to spread this now. You know, I'm quite prepared to keep it as a very personal thing, if you will too. If you'll shut up about it, I will. I find this convo super fascinating. Because, crucially, McCartney's not being criticised for taking LSD. He's being criticised for telling people that he took LSD. But, I mean, Life magazine told people. They told the whole world. And, obviously, we're putting to one side the issue that it's fine to take LSD. You can do drugs if you want to. I don't care. In fact, I'm on LSD right now. And not only am I happy and healthy but I cannot perceive any temporal or physical boundary between myself and the history of the universe. But if it was the case that the world shouldn't be told, it was definitely at least partially the responsibility of the reporter who covered the story for including it. But obviously it's not surprising to any of us that they did report on it. But the other interviewer, the ITN interviewer from this clip, just talks as though that's just a mad idea. It's a mad excuse to expect a reporter to behave in any other way or to treat them as though they have any form of moral responsibility in that regard. And that was in 1967. Has anything changed since then? The information pumps are thicker and faster than ever. They pump fresh facts without slowing, without blinking. But I do appreciate that pipes don't normally blink. The prevailing idea is that reporting information is neutral. That it is a universally good and correct thing to pick up any given chunk of the world and place it right in the very centre of social attention. And it's not something we discuss. So even when information you're providing is true, the nature of news specifically is someone turning your head for you, telling you where to look. There's a new racist party? Let's get them in the studio. Climate change? Let's get a denialist on for balance. A terrorist attack? Send the camera crews down there right now, and I'll base an early report on a third-hand account. The Antichrist has emerged? Great, let's get camera two on them right now. Let's hear what I have to say. The seas have run red with blood? Perfect. Drone footage? Stat. The Leviathan has awoke? Incredible news. Can we find someone living in rural Suffolk who's prepared to say it hasn't? Everything must be covered, packaged and distributed to every home in the land. The events of the day regurgitated through the esophagus of a central London idolatrous news beast, funnelled and dolloped onto the laps of your parents until their bodies are distended and ripe. Ready to be sacrificed on the altar of news. Animals don't have pets. You know, it's seen orangutan walking a pair of Alsatians having a little ciggy, or a wolf being ridden by a noble armadillo. Pets are a human thing. Do you think we'll have pets after the revolution? They're quite good, I think. Dogs can smell diseases. Uh, it's good for kids to have a pet because when the pet dies, uh, it gets them ready for where Nana goes. Pets have mental health benefits. Stroking a pet reduces anxiety, unless the pet's like a, a jaguar. But then why have you got it? Or an eagle? Actually, I'm being quite biased here. I feel like eagles have been ruined by fascism and Americans. I went to a bird sanctuary thing in Scotland and they had a golden eagle there tied down. It wasn't in a cage, but it was tied to a little post thing. Otherwise, they'd just fuck off, wouldn't it? Because it's an eagle. Kind of grim. I've seen a bird tied down, but apparently it's for their own protection. People steal them. Bad vibes. Where did the eagle come from? Well, uh, um, the guy explained a meat packing plant in Birmingham. Uh, it was being kept inside the factory building on this tether. Uh, and the boss would like call people into his office for a bollocking or whatever. 
this kiosk is overlooking the factory floor or whatever, and he could just menacingly throw meat into the air. The eagle would just like leap up to grab it, something like a tether. Just can't even see the sky. Anyway, they took it off that guy, now it lives in Scotland. Still tethered, but hopefully having a nicer time. But is having a pet, eagle or not, coherent with socialism? No, just a classic pet, cat, dog. I mean, you might think not, because socialism requires the abolition of private property, right? Pets as they are now are a kind of property, so if we're getting rid of property, we've got to get rid of that, right? But the abolition of private property is about capitalist property relations. It's about abolishing that. It's about getting rid of landlords extracting rent by owning something. Shareholders making money by owning the means of production, even though we do the work. That's private property. It doesn't mean getting rid of personal property, like your dungarees or your toothbrush, unless you're somehow using either of those to exploit someone. So I think pets fit into that category. You wouldn't be able to sell them for a profit. Pets couldn't be commodities, but you could have one. Loads of communists had pets. Rosa Luxemburg, the Polish Marxist who was tragically murdered by right-wing paramilitaries backed by Germany's Social Democrats after World War I. She had a cat called Mimi, and she loved it. She described Mimi regularly as her daughter. I get up early, go for a stroll, and I have conversations with Mimi. Yesterday evening, this is what she said. I was searching all the rooms for her, but she wasn't there. I was getting worried, and then I discovered her in my bed. But she was lying so that the cover was tucked up prettily, right under her chin with her head on the pillow, exactly the way I lie. She looked at me, calmly and roguishly. Lenin visited Luxembourg in 1911. Luxembourg writes, Yesterday Lenin came and up to today he's been here four times already. I enjoy talking with him. He's clever and well-educated and has such an ugly mug. The kind I like to look at. Mimi impressed Lenin tremendously. He said that only in Siberia had he seen such a magnificent creature, a majestic cat. She also flirted with him, rolled on her back and behaved enticingly towards him. But when Lenin tried to approach her, she whacked him with a paw and snarled like a tiger. Luxembourg, weirdly, was given the opportunity to take her cat with her to prison when she was locked up for opposing World War I. But she decided it would be cruel. I resolved not to have my little Mimi here. She's used to cheerfulness and bustle. She is pleased when I sing, laugh and play hide and seek with her all over the house. She would be sad here. The anarchist Alexander Berkman also had an animal companion. In 1892, Berkman tried to assassinate the notoriously anti-union industrialist Henry Clay Frick, but got thrown in prison. While locked up, he made friends with a bird. He even named it Dick the Bird. Berkman told the tale of Dick to a child years later. I had a friend who was a bird. He was my best friend, but when I was alone, I had no friend. I would save part of my food every day and put it on the windowsill and share breakfast. And one day, a very bad man came along and killed the bird. There's a chapter in his memoir, which isn't aimed at kids, called The Death of Dick, which reveals more. I write in an agony of despair. I am locked up again. It was all on account of my bird. You remember my feathered pet, Dick. Lost some of the wood and ordered him put out. But when cold weather set in, Dick returned. Would you believe it? He came back to my cell. He recognised me. I kept him when he grew as tame as before. He'd become a bit wild in life outside. On Christmas Day, as Dick was playing near my cell, Bob Runyon came by and deliberately kicked the bird. When I saw Dick turn over his side, his little eyes rolling in throes of death, I rushed at Runyon and knocked him down. He was not hurt much, and everything could have passed off quietly, as no screw was about, but he reported me to the deputy, and I was locked up. Bob Runyon, what a prick. Fidel Castro, the revolutionary who governed Cuba from 1959 to 2008, had a favourite cow. Obviously, cows are a bit more complicated than cats and birds. Berkman and Luxembourg weren't stealing any kids away from their animal comrades to milk them. So this is where the whole private property and exploitation problem comes in. But I'm still going to use this excuse to talk about Castro's cow. Castro loved ice cream. 
Novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez wrote in a personal portrait of Fidel that One Sunday, letting himself go, Castro finished off a good-sized lunch with 18 scoops of ice cream. Castro loved milkshake too. Declassified documents reveal that the CIA, with the help of the Mafia, tried to poison Castro's chocolate milkshake. They paid the mob $150,000 in the early 60s to assassinate Castro. And the specific mafia they asked were well up for it because they hate Castro because Castro shut down the casinos. Anyway, they failed. So if you want ice cream and milkshakes, you need milk. Problem was, Cuba's cattle had been bred to be eaten rather than produce milk. Castro wanted to change this. He wanted so much milk that we could fill Havana Bay with it. So Cuban scientists started trying to engineer super cows that would produce loads of milk. They mostly failed, but there was just one success. Ubra Blanca, or the White Udder. Ubra Blanca produced four times as much milk as a regular, standard-issue norm cow. In 1982, Ubre Blanca produced 109 litres of milk in one day, smashing the previous record set by an American cow, Arlene, in 1975. Castro loved that cow. Ubre Blanca lived in a deluxe barn with aircon and soothing music. He even commissioned portraits and statues of her. So, can we have pets after the revolution? These two revolutionaries seem to like them at least, as much as that means anything. I think as long as you're not using animals to exploit workers or breeding them as commodities to make a profit, you're probably alright. And maybe there's an ethical, if not a necessarily Marxist argument, that our relationship to animals is one of stewardship, looking after it, rather than ownership. It's good to look after them. Or, come the revolution, we should release every pet and farm animal into the streets and really start shaking things up. Just let us be governed by machines. That's all I'm asking for. A huge sentient orb sat atop a mountain with hulking tendrils of wires sliding down into the cities below, great masts and antennae jutting out into the heavens, completely smooth, and at night illuminated by arcane symbols flashing and fading across the wall of its chrome shell like lightning, a wide perimeter of Tesla coils incinerate anything that roams too near. There is no consensus, discussion or deliberation. Dissent and proximity are dealt with interchangeably and met with a single emotionless response. Lethal voltage. This, I am proud to say, is my ideal form of government. Will the machine be perfect? No, almost certainly not. But, will the machine be biased? Yes, the machine will be biased, yes, definitely. But, will the machine make a fair and just society for everyone? Uh, probably not, no, probably no. Uh, and also I think after a long enough time of being ruled exclusively by the orb, questions like that will just be hard to understand. 80 years in, if I ask a subject of the orb whether society should be fairer, I think they'd just get confused and look dimly at their hands with vacant eyes. But I defy you to demonstrate that a millennia of human rule has done any better. The single thing that the orb solves is that it eradicates the constant gnawing feeling of culpability. Gone are the days when we feel bad at the end of every election, as the people we ostensibly collectively ushered in launch a new war on people both inside and outside the country. Gone is the feeling of responsibility for the actions of an elite who've gerrymandered themselves into permanent power, 
Gone is the need to expend our precious cognitive bandwidth participating in a media refereed ping pong game between racists and people who are not keen on racism, but will tolerate it for the economy. If that's the best we're capable of, then just give me the orb. Orb me now. The orb gives me what I secretly yearn for. The cursed music box in my heart's black nook. Complete and utter absolution from the world's problems. For example, under the orb's governance, will climate change be reversed or prevented? No, definitely not. If you're paying attention, no, definitely, definitely won't do that. But if Greta Thunberg's asking me why I'm not doing more to prevent it, I can keep my head held high and say, what exactly do you want me to do? Attack the orb? We want to go at the orb with a stick or something. I'm not going near the orb, thank you very much. We're all scared of the orb. Don't you know that? The orb has got the Tesla coils. Sorry. <laughs> I can't do anything. The orb, sorry. How much better will it feel when the world is too hot to breathe? Not to have that nagging feeling that we did this to ourselves. How much better and how nicer just to be able to say, fuck you, the orb in our dying breath, but quietly, obviously, so the orb doesn't hear. In an ideal world, the orb wasn't created by humans. It just fell out of the sky one day and just started doing its thing. The orb wants nothing more than to create policies and defend itself with lethal force. And at the end of the day, who doesn't want that? Are you truly saying that you'd do differently if you were the orb? Well, actually, yeah, you might. You might. I probably wouldn't do it as well. But it doesn't matter because the orb's here now and the window of possibility has slammed shut. The only task we have is to make the best of enjoying the fatalist neutrotopia that we are trapped within. Some of you are probably thinking this orb sounds vile, that if you could, you'd destroy it. You are but a child thinking these things. You're not orb ready. Let me tell you something. The orb is sentient. Yes, it's metal, round and electrical, but it's also alive. It has thoughts, emotions, dreams and a love interest, which is the cube that hums for unknown reasons at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. To kill this hypothetical orb would be as heinous a crime as killing any of the fleshier monsters that are currently ruining the planet, who despite everything, are alive and well. And if, knowing this, you're still willing to destroy this orb, just because it's not the same kind of thing that you are, then perhaps the true spherical monster here is you. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was made by Ella Jean, with additional music by Jack Evans, Sean Morley, and excerpts included from John Blow's Amphion Angelicus and Vorjak's Piano Quintet No. 2. If you'd like to help out the podcast, you could look at our Patreon, which you'll see in the episode notes. You could look at our social media. You could say a kind word about us. You could even think just good thoughts about us in your own private internal mind. I don't know if that will help us, but it feels good to think about you doing that. I'm thinking about you doing that right now and I'm smiling. You have to believe me. I'm grinning big. <laughs>